The following content is brought to you as a part of our Equip Study Series at Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. Over the next six weeks, we'll be focusing on breaking down the confession that we adopted as a new church, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. All right, everybody, we'll go ahead and get started. We're going to go ahead and find a seat. We're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome on this spring-like last day of February. I was, t- I was talking to, uh, well, oh, it is March. Oh, it's March 1st today. Well, I will say this. I was talking to Jesse yesterday, and I told her, yeah, the, la- the actual last day of February, I said, this has been the best February I think I've ever had in my life. It's just been awesome. Anyway. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and pray and get started, and uh, we'll go from there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you tonight. We're just so thankful to be able to gather together, fellowship with one another, um, to open your word, to, to talk about uh, this confession, which sums up um, so much of what we believe in helpful bites. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight as we discuss these things. Uh, Lord, would you give us wisdom? Uh, would you give us clarity? Guard us from error. And uh, Lord, help us to glorify you. As, as we leave tonight, Lord, may we see you more Clearly, and may we sincerely love and trust you and look to you. Uh, Lord, let's not just see these as systems and abstract thoughts, but instead help us to see you more clearly so that we can continue and persevere in our life, growing into Christ's likeness by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are going to be in chapter 14, starting in chapter 14. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 20, so another seven chapters. Um, and so again, uh, we're going to fly through, hit some of these highlights. Um, and I just want to say on the front end of tonight, and I'll, I'll probably end up mentioning it again. I don't know, Pastor Casey talked in length about this the first week. He talked a lot about the history um, what led up to this, the importance of these confessions. And it's important to know that this confession was not just written in a vacuum, like someone, there, it's not like nothing was going on in the world and they just wrote it. No, some things they write, some things they word in certain ways in response to different things that are happening in the church uh, in general and to culture. And so they might word things a little bit differently um, than they would normally um, based on their times. And so I just want to say that going in, because there will be a couple things that we're not going to necessarily tweak, but um, there's a few things I read in this confession. I'll read the line, and I'll be like, I'll put a question mark there, because I'm like, what? what? It's obvious that they're talking about something that I'm not privy to, and so uh, I'll bring those up as we go along. But we'll be in chapter 14, and this is the chapter on saving faith, saving faith. Um, So we continue in this line of thought. Last week, we talked a lot about justification, sanctification, um, that golden chain of salvation, effectual calling, 
Um, and so we're going to kind of continue in that this week and move on from there. But when we look at chapter 14, let me read 14.1. So it's page 32 in your confession. It says this, the grace of faith enables the elect to believe so that their souls are saved. It is the work of the spirit of Christ in their hearts. Faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the word, by the same ministry and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God. Faith is increased and strengthened. So last week we talked about what saves us, that we are justified in God's sight. The legal demands upon us have been satisfied in Jesus. We are counted not guilty because Jesus stands in our place. His righteousness is ours because of what he's done for us. If we have believed in him and trusted in him. Um, but we talk, this chapter is going to focus on what faith is. And, and the first thing I want to say, and what's evident in this first section is that faith is a grace. It's a grace. It's not something that you can work or conjure up on your own. It's a grace. It's what is grace. It's, it's unmerited favor. And in the, in the Christian world, we would say unmerited divine favor. So grace is something we don't deserve. And so faith is a grace. And you see that because in that second line, it says it is the work talking about faith it is the work of the Spirit of Christ. So it is Christ, it's the work of the Spirit that produces this faith. Um, I also love this first, this first paragraph because it talks about the means of helping strengthen faith when faith is weak. And I, and I think we can, all, um, we can all come to a time in our life, we can think on a time in our life where we, our faith has been shaken or it's been weakened. Um, I mean, think of any time where maybe a trial happened or you're suffering through something or you go through something and it just, man, it just lights you up and it's a blow to your faith. It's it, not saying that you lose your faith, but for a time or a short time or maybe even an extent, a extended period of time, you might have your faith shaken. Um, I remember when I was in college, the first year I went off to college, so my junior year, because I went to community college first. I went to um, UCF. I didn't know anyone in Orlando, not a soul. I was rooming with three other guys, didn't know, not Christians. And, you know, I went through this period where I was just doubting, I, and I had no one around me to talk to me about it. It was a very lonely time, and it was a very dark time in my life. I had fallen into some sin, and I, I just, I had felt like I had gotten into a pit where my faith before seemed so strong when I was around my brothers and sisters in my church and my community, my girlfriend <laughs> right there. Um, it seemed so strong. But then when I go by myself off to Orlando and, you know, a month, two goes by, I haven't found a church and I fall into sin. I don't have anyone to pull me out of that. It's just, it's just me. And I remember that being just such a dark time. And, and my faith in that, in that time was just, I looked to that time as a place where probably my faith was at its weakest because I was doubting so much. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that you should never question things in your faith. That's, that's all I'm saying. But I'd gone through a period where it was tied to sin in my life. But thank God, he gives us means to help strengthen us in our faith. 
And the church is one of those means. And, and in fact, the thing that helped pull me out, well, I started, um, something I didn't do up until this point was, I don't know, apparently there was people out there that just listen to sermons in their free time. And I grew up in the church and I had never even heard of that. And this guy, um, a new friend of mine said, hey, you should listen to the sermon. And I was like, that's kind of weird. I don't know. To me, it was weird that I would listen to a sermon on YouTube. Um, but I was like, okay, well, I'll go do that. And I did. I listened to a sermon. It was out of Matthew chapter 7. And by hearing God's word and by the word being preached, it was like he was speaking to me through his word. And it was exactly what I needed to pull me out of or to begin to pull me out of this darkness, this, this lack, I want to say this weakened faith I had. And so the preaching of God's word and then tied with this man's friendship, as we discuss afterward, these means that God uses, primarily his word, his body, helps strengthen my faith. And so in this section, it talks about faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the word, meaning faith is produced by, um, when it talks about ordinarily, the preaching of God's word, the telling of God's word, um, by this same ministry, this ordinary ministry, and by the administration of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, and other means appointed by God, faith is increased and strengthened. Notice how it says appointed by God. So these are things that God has appointed for us to see to, or to experience so that we, our faith would be strengthened. Okay. Now it's important to know that this isn't like a workout playlist. Okay. It's not just whatever works for you. Like if you're going to the gym, you probably, if any of you go to the gym, you probably have like a playlist you work out to something that just really gets you going. Yeah. This really works for me. Um, whatever genre of music it is. I don't know what, whatever it works for you. It's not like that. It's not like a menu at a restaurant where you just pick, the, pick what you like. No, these things are appointed by God to help you and strengthen you in your faith. Take this past Sunday, for example. We saw Elias McCall be baptized. That's amazing. We get to see a brother, a now brother, go from, well, he was already gone from death to life, but the symbol of baptism going from death to new life in Christ. That strengthens us. It's meant to edify us watching that because we participate in it. The church baptizes him, and now he's part of us. The Lord's Supper is meant for this. It's not just a snack on Sundays, right? The Lord's Supper, when you take that Lord's Supper, we're reminded of our pledge and our oath of our, the vows we took at our baptism, those words we say, Jesus is Lord, that Christ has saved us, and it's meant to strengthen us. That's one of the reasons why we, we do it every week now. It's meant to help strengthen you. I don't know what kind of week you have. You're, you're going to have terrible weeks, but when you come, you fellowship with the church, you hear the word of God read, you hear it preached, you pray together. Notice, you see people being baptized. We take the Lord's Supper together. This is God's design and appointed means to help you grow in your faith. You don't have to just think of things to help you grow. He, he's already appointed them for you. 14.2. Actually, I'm going to go to 14.3. This faith may exist in varying degrees so that it may either be weak or strong. Yet in its weakest form, it is different in kind or nature, like all other saving graces, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Therefore, may, therefore faith may often be attacked and weakened, but it gains the victory. It matures in many to the point that they attain full assurance through Christ, 
who is both the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so this has, this is kind of what we were just talking about. Faith can come in, in degrees, like it can be weakened or strengthened. Now, obviously, all right, <laughs> um, I lost my train of thought. Weakened or strengthened. So, um, and it says because it can be attacked or weakened, but ultimately it gains the victory because what is faith? Faith is a grace that's given to us by God, who, who's appointed means to help us grow in that. I want to I note something here that maybe stood out to you. Um, it says here, yet yeah, in its weakest form, it is different in kind or nature um, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Now, I want to just quick note on temporary believers. You might say, what does that mean? Temporary believers. Because we've already talked about, and we'll talk even more about it tonight, that once you are saved that God has justified you, that you can't be taken out. You can't be unsaved. So what does it mean when it's talking about temporary believers? Well, this is where the history helps us. Because at this time, you had this um, heresy, this false teaching going around called antinomianism. Anti being no, nomianism, well, the Greek there is law, so no law. And so you had these people saying, hey, once you believe in Jesus, you can, and I'm simplifying it, you can do whatever you want, Right? And so you had people that um, were preached this and they would just make these professions but never actually grow in faith. And so you have people that would confess Jesus as Lord but actually, I'd say, fall away that never actually followed up. You think about the parable of the sower that Jesus talks about. And so when it says temporary believers, it's not talking about people that were actually believers and now they're not. Temporary believers is just meant to say people that may have professed faith but or people that saw, maybe went to the Asbury Revival, which is a good, I think, a good thing. But, you know, they, did, they saw it, they heard it, the gospel preached, and they had a moment of emotion, but then it, it never actually turned into anything, right? I'm not picking on Asbury Revival, but just any, any circumstance like that. But I just want to highlight that. When we see temporary believer, we're not talking about people that were in Christ and now not in Christ, All right. So, oh, and, and a note on this too. It, it says here that even a little faith is better than no faith at all. So if you're in Christ, like your faith is never just decimated to, to nothing. Even a, a little faith. I mean, talk, think about the parable of the mustard seed. All right. Even a mustard seed's tiny. Even a little faith is better than no faith at all. And so he's, they're comparing it to people that aren't in Christ and have no faith. All right, so saving faith. Uh, any questions about this chapter? All right, let's go to chapter 15. Zooming along here. That one took too long. That was 15 minutes for a chapter. We're going to have to go faster than that. Um, this one is on repentance to life and salvation. Repentance to life and salvation. I'm going to read... Uh, 15.2. Uh, there is no one who does good and does not sin. Even the best may fall into great sins and offenses through the power and deceitfulness of the corruption in them, along with the strength of temptation. Therefore, God has mercifully provided in the covenant of grace that believers who sin and fall will be renewed through repentance to salvation. So real quick, let me... Repentance 
All right, we, repentance is not penance, and repentance is not just good intentions, okay? So when we talk about you commit a sin and you feel bad about it, feeling bad about it is not repentance, all right? And so if you steal something and then later on you have a moment of remorse or regret, well, that's a good start. But just coming to that point, not being in Christ and just thinking, oh, I feel bad about that, but I, uh, I guess I'll just keep doing it. Uh, we're watching this show called The Last of Us right now, and it's a show that's about the apocalypse, and it's, it's, all, it's okay. But um, essentially, it's this apocalyptic show, and so they're all, this, they're all pretty much have the same premise. Like, these zombies are taking over, and all the people, you know, all the governments have fallen, and all the people are just trying to fend for themselves. And one of the main characters that's falling now, he's viewed as this protagonist. He's, he's the guy that's protecting one of the other characters, but he always references these past things that he feels guilty for because he spent 20 years surviving. And what he means by that is murdering other people, stealing from other people, doing all these terrible things. But he never comes to a point because it's not a gospel-centered show. He never comes to this point of redemption, right? He just feels bad about it. And you could tell it, it, it hurts him. He feels terrible about it. He thinks about it. He dreams about it. He talks about it all the time, but it just stays there. But that's not what repentance is. It's, it's good news. You know, repentance is, you know, really changing your mind. So if I'm going this way, repentance is turning around and going the other way. So if I'm living in this sin, fill in the blank with this sin, repenting from it would be changing your mind about it and turning and looking to Christ, turning away from that sin, right? This is what is meant to be part of our life as Christians, that God grants us this repentance as Christians. It doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. It might still be a struggle. You might fall again. But ultimately, we're to live a life of repentance where we turn away from sin and turn to Christ. And it's a duty for us, too, for, for men to pursue repentance. When we sin against God, yes, we have been forgiven ultimately. But when we sin against God, we still want to go to God and confess our sin. Let me read this, 15.3. This, we're talking now about saving repentance. So what that means is when you put your faith in Christ, faith and repentance are kind of two sides of the same coin. When you put your faith in Jesus, true faith in Jesus also accompanies repentance. Because when you turn to Christ, you are thereby turning from your old life. You're turning from the old man, the old woman that you were, and turning towards Christ. So 15.3 the saving repentance is a gospel grace in which those who are made aware by the Holy Spirit of the many evils of their, of their sin, by faith in Christ, humble themselves for, for it with godly sorrow, hatred of it, the sin that is, self-loathing, they pray for pardon and strength of grace and determine and endeavor by provisions from the Spirit to live before God in a well-pleasing way in everything. And so, again, this is this work that, you know, you're not alone in. Right? When you turn to faith in Christ, you repent. You turn from your sin. You hate your sin. The Bible uses very strong language against sin, talking about repentance. Turning from sin is, is hating your sin and turning towards Christ instead and running towards Christ. When we, when we talk about repentance, it, it helps us not be complacent in our walk. 
Because again, you had these antinomians out here that say, hey, I, I made a profession of faith. I believe in Jesus. He died, paid the price for my sin. That, that's great. But then there's no fruit from that. They just live a life of doing whatever they want. Well, that's not the gospel. Because the gospel produces fruit. This faith, the saving faith we just talked about rep- produces fruit. And repentance is the means by which God uses to help us produce that. Any questions? On repentance. I have a really good story about repentance. We'll talk maybe after. We'll see how much time we have left. It's a very dear subject to my heart. Um, Anyway. All right. Good works. Chapter 16. Chapter 16. Uh, This chapter is going to define faith working by love. And, And it's important that we just go ahead and say this on the front end. Works don't save us. I think we all know that, all right? But we want to define, and this chapter helps us define what a work is. We don't depend on our works to save us. Christ saves us. To put anything, if you say Christ and anything, that is a works-based salvation. Okay, so let me read 16.1. I'm going to read actually 16, one and two good works are only those works that God has commanded in his holy word works that do not have this warrant are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions and are not truly good. I'm going to keep going. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. Through good works, believers express their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, build up their brothers and sisters, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of opponents, and glorify God. Believers are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that they bear fruit, leading to holiness, and have the outcome eternal, have the outcome eternal life. So when we talk about good works, this is any Work that you can put, like I said, if you say Christ and this, that's a good work. We don't, before Christ, you cannot come and say, Jesus accepts me on the basis of me being a good person. Okay? And by the world standards, you might be a great person. You might do, hey, you might go feed the poor on Monday nights, Tuesday night. Uh, You might go and wash your neighbor's car Wednesday night. Uh, you might go to uh, the food bank and serve. I, I don't know. Think of any good work. And then you might go four times a year to an orphanage in another country and help serve there and do these great things. Those are all good things by the world standards. But what this is helping us see and what the Bible teaches us is those works done apart from faith are not good at all. And in fact, if you were to come to Jesus and say, look at all that I've done. He's not going to take, let me just read this. Matthew 7, I already mentioned it. Okay, so Matthew seven twenty one says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so calling him Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lord, did, did I not do these good things? But that's not the basis of our salvation. Our works don't accomplish anything. Why? We've already talked about our sinful nature. Everything we do is stained by sin. Uh, there's a, um, don't judge me. You can if you want, I don't care. There, you guys know the show Friends? Yeah, okay, good. Uh, there's a show, if you're not familiar, well, you missed the late 90s and early, t- well, I guess just the 90s. Uh, so show Friends, there's an episode in the show where they have this, uh, um, I can't remember the character, I think it's Phoebe and Chandler, or Phoebe and Joey, they have this disagreement about there's no such thing. One of them says there's no such thing as a selfless act. Oh, she remembers that one. There's no such thing as a selfless act. And so the other person tries to spend the whole episode doing good things to prove, hey, you can be selfless. But every time that person does it, he would say, oh, no, you did it for this reason, which is for yourself. And I was like, wow, this teaches us a really important theological lesson, which friends rarely does. Uh, we see that's very true, that before Christ, any work you do is stained by sin. And, and even in Romans 14, it says anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. So yes, by the world standards, I, I would never tell someone who's not in Christ, hey, you know, stop feeding the poor. Like I would never do that, but we can't come and say, Jesus, take me for what I've done. I've done good stuff. But when the Bible talks about good work, the Bible doesn't condemn good works, but it does condemn good works if you're trusting in them to save you. Hey, I come to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. You know, I don't do, I don't cuss. I don't chew. I don't smoke. I don't whatever all these, whatever, whatever you say, right? That's not enough to save you. Jesus is the only one who is enough to satisfy the payment for sin. But the Bible doesn't neglect talking about good works. And in fact, places in the Bible like James, we don't have time to cover this, I encourage you to read it, has places a heavy emphasis on good works. And the reason is because good works are a fruit of what's happened to you. If Jesus has changed you, you see what the gospel has done. He's removed your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He's made you new. You now have new desires. Your desires have been transformed. This is a supernatural work. And so now when you do good works, they come from Christ, from faith in Christ. And so they are truly good now. You can truly have good works. And in fact, James would say, if you, you, I'm not going to go into that, but James would pretty much say, hey, show me your works and I'll show you a faith. So he's saying, don't, he's pretty much giving this example of if you have faith, but not works, it's a dead faith. But what he's not saying is, hey, works will save you. He's saying, if you are changed by Christ, you now will do these good works. You will do these good things because of what Christ has done for you. You know, I think about getting a gift. Um, the natural, the, the thing about a gift is that you don't deserve gifts. You know, um, when I give my children gifts on Christmas, it's certainly not because they deserve it. You know, if I were to make a ledger of all the good things they did and all the bad things they did, I would, you know, Santa Claus would be like, yeah, no, coal for you, right? But I don't give gifts to my children because they're so good. I give them because I love them. and I want to just give them a gift. 
the gospel is often, t- when we see in scripture, and we even talk about the gospel being a gift, a gift of salvation, something that's given to us and we didn't deserve it. But what does a gift do? You get a gift and Bob, you shared when you gave that gift to the guy in Columbia, the, the laser thing that you shared, what was his reaction? Oh my goodness, look at this thing. He's just over, he's showing his friends, he's telling his friends all about it, and now he's going to use it to do this different work. And so the, the gift and what the gospel, if we compare the gospel to a gift, moves us to work. Moves us to work. We're not justified by those works. Instead, they're a fruit of the gospel. Um, 16.7, real quick. Works done, and I kind of mentioned this already, works done by unregenerate people may in themselves be commanded by God and useful to themselves and others, yet they do not come from a heart purified by faith and are not done in a right manner according to the word, nor with a right goal, the glory of God. Therefore, they are sinful and cannot please God. Hard truth. They, They cannot qualify anyone to receive grace from God, yet their neglect is even more sinful and displeasing to God. Maybe if you're trying to share the gospel with your friends, this might not be a great place to start. Well, actually, it might be, right? Say you're at work and you're like, hey, you know what the Bible says is actually you can't do anything good, which is true. It's just showing that before Christ, you you really can't do anything good because you're a sinner. We are sinners. But the gospel changes us. Um... I was going to talk more about that. You can look at Cain's offering in Genesis. What happens with Cain's offering? He goes, he, he, you know, him and Abel go and get, gather an offering to present before God, but God rejects Cain's offering. And so, and we are not told exactly why. We just know that there's evil in Cain's heart that God sees. And he offers his offering as, you know, essentially a, a work. Like, okay, here's what I did. I think I've shared this example before as well. Um, probably in a sermon, you know, uh, when I went out, um, oh, we just got back from a youth camp and I think I was a junior or a senior and it's Florida, it's July or August, it's super hot outside. And we just got back from a great weekend. All my friends were going to go hang out. And, uh, I asked my dad, dad, can I have the van to go hang out? And he says, after you, after you mow the lawn, (sighs) gosh, it's so hot outside, and he won't get a riding lawnmower, and we have an acre, you know, and I'm like, which is not a big deal, but when you're a teenager, it's like, I want to hang on my friends, dad, you know, instead, I got to go mow the lawn and heat to death, you know, and so uh, I'm out there, and although I'm doing this thing that my dad, I'm doing the thing in order to get the car, I'm doing what my dad tells me to do, but the whole time, I'm just so mad. <laughs> I'm just like, I can't wait to get out of here, old man. Like, you don't tell me what to do, you know? Like, you know, if my dad came, yes, sir, how may I help you? you know? um, right? I mean, that, that was, it revealed something in my heart. And even though I was doing this work, it wasn't good. And so um, maybe to not that extent, but essentially before Christ, when we do good works, that they're not, they cannot please God. Someone who is not regenerate, who is not a believer, cannot please God. Our truth. That's why we tell people about the gospel. Um, real quick, um, I know I've said that like three times already in this section, but this is really defined 16.2. I'm just going to sum it up. What good works are for believers, they express, as believers, that's important, they express thankfulness, 
They strengthen assurance, build up other believers, adorn, and they accompany the gospel. So like we went to Columbia, we helped with the road, but we also preached the gospel. They, they help adorn the gospel, right? Um, and combat opponents and glorify God. All right, we're going to keep going. Chapter 17, perseverance of the saints. Every time I see this word, I always want to say perseverance. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so I'm going to read 17.1 because I love this paragraph. It says this, those God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and to be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Praise God. Therefore, he still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which are anchored by faith. The felt sight, excuse me, the felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them for a time through their unbelief and temptations of Satan, yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation where they will enjoy their purchased possession, for they are engraved on the palms of his hands and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. And we praise God for this. What is this saying? All right, so, and I think Pastor Casey's talked about this a lot, but you know, you grow up hearing once saved, always saved. That is true, right? But I actually think perseverance of the saints is a better term to say that. Because you say... Once saved, always saved. That's true. Once you have been justified, once you are a believer, you're part of God's family, nothing can take you from that. That is true. Once you have been saved, you are always saved. But in order to flesh that out some more, what God is saying, hey, once I have saved you and brought you part of my family, I'm never going to let you go. I'm going to help you persevere to the end. And it car- perseverance, the word carries this idea of, hey, not everything's going to be hunky-dory all the time even says it in this confession. You're going to go through times of doubt, temptation, trial, tribulation, times of faith weakened, but you will, if you are in Christ, you will persevere to the end. Believers cannot totally fall away from the faith. So when we talk about people losing their salvation, all right, we don't believe that. You Someone cannot lose their salvation. I like how the confession puts it. It puts it engraved in the palms of God. Um, it's just a, an image, right? Because you can't unengrave it. <laughs> um, you were there. You are part of God's family and nothing can take you from it. And we talked last week a lot about sanctification. That not only is he preserving you, he's keeping you in the faith. He's keeping you part of the family. He will not let you go. He's also working in you to make you more like his son, Christ. Praise God for this too. 17.2 says, this, the, this perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on the unchangeableness, unchangeableness of the decree of election, which flows from the free and unchangeable love of God. 
It is based on the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, the certainty and infallibility of their perseverance, of our perseverance, we are in Christ, is based on these things. And so if we are in Christ, we may sin, but praise God, he is going to keep us. He's going to change us and grow us, right? It's not based on just our free will only, you know, and we'll, we'll get to this, but someone can't, like, if you just say, okay, I'm going to stop. I don't believe in God anymore. And you're like that to the end. Then we would say you were never in Christ to begin with. And the confessional flesh, flesh that out more here shortly. Um, what time is it? 7.08. We got a little bit of time. So the work of Christ in accomplishing and applying this redemption, we think about, we talked last week about he is the great high priest. He is priest, king, right? So he is priestly. He is our high priest. He is interceding for us. That won't go away. And it also talks, the Bible talks about when we are in Christ, we are united with Christ. We, like, when we talk about baptism, when it symbolizes that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, and to say that you can fall away from that would to be saying something about God and his sovereignty. So you're saying now that you've been, you're just unbaptized, that you're ununified with Christ? No. You are unified with Christ. You are united with Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. All right. Any questions so far on those two chapters? We move on. Okay, chapter 18, the assurance and grace of salvation. Um, love this chapter, especially love the, the topic of assurance. We talked about God will surely persevere you to the end, and he will surely sanctify you, conforming you to the image of Jesus. When we talk about assurance, we're talking about something slightly different, Okay. So 18.1 starts with this. It starts with describing what assurance isn't. It starts describing what a false assurance is. When I say assurance, I'm talking about being assured of your salvation. Temporary believers, there's that term again. Okay, we talked about that. Temporary believers and other unregenerate people may deceive themselves in vain with false hopes and fleshly presumptions presumptions that they have God's favor and salvation, but their hope will perish. Yet those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him sincerely, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and this hope will never make them Ashamed, And so it starts by talking about what there's a delusion. There can be a delusion of of assurance for someone who's never put their faith in Christ. We talked earlier about someone who says, who says, Hey, you know, I'm a good person. Anyone ever heard of the evangelism method way of the master? Okay. So that's what, when I was a teenager, like my mentor took me through this way of the master and it's, you know, there's different types of evangelism methods and pretty much what this is, is you go up, you know, start talking to somebody 
and you ask them, do you think you're a good person? And then most people say yes. Some people say no. That's a quicker cut to the gospel, but most people think they're a good person. You start to ask them, okay, um, have you ever stolen anything? Uh, well, you know, when I was a kid, I stole something. Okay, have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted after someone that's not your spouse? And so they'll say, while you're on a mission, you're a thief, a liar, and an adulterer. And then they use that to get them to the gospel. Right? But someone who says, hey, I'm a good person, but, it's a, but comes with these works that says, hey, I'm good because of this, this, and this. I've never, done the, I've never murdered anybody. But that, we know that that's not true because if you've thought anger against your brother in your heart, Jesus says that you've murdered already. So there's this delusion that you, people think, oh, I, I, you know, when I get to heaven, I'll, I'll, I'll be to heaven. I didn't do anything bad. There can be this false assurance. People can live with this false assurance. And that's why when you're sharing the gospel with someone, the most loving thing you can do is tell them the truth. Tell them the truth that offends, that they're sinful. That can be difficult depending on who you're talking to. Telling someone, hey, you're a sinner. Don't be self-deceived. God will not accept you based on the things that you've done in this life. He will only accept you based on Christ. But that's where our assurance, actual true assurance, comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the, the foundational factors that he has there in 18.1 that, um, that helps us be assured. Truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love Christ in sincerity. Endeavoring to walk in all good conscience towards Christ. Um, I want to read this, this passage from uh, Thomas Vincent. He explains um, what it talks about loving Christ sincerely means and, and how it helps in assurance. It says this, Christians ought to love Christ with sincerity of love. It is a great sin to love Christ with a feigned or hypocritical love. The love of Christians to Christ ought to be sincere in regard of the habit and inward workings of it. They must love him not only in show, word, and outward profession, but their love must be cordial in their heart. And so a love in deed and in truth, and the love of Christians to Christ must be sincere in regard to the object of it, Christ. They must love Christ for himself and not chiefly for what they get by him. To love Christ only for temporal gain, so short-term gain, is hypocritical love. To love Christ chiefly for other gain is not, is not so spiritual, but to love Christ for his own excellencies and perfections is most sincere and generous. This sincerity of, sincerity of love to Christ is everyone's duty. But loving Christ for who he is, who we've been talking about, not just by what you can get from him, not just how he might benefit you. And we, t we, we talk too about, you know, you, when the uh, political season comes, the voting season comes, you see candidates who don't live for Christ at all start, start to talk about the Bible. Why? Well, it benefits them. It gets them voters. It gets them a certain type of voter. But this is talking about a, a sincerity of love for Christ. Um, me and Jesse have this friend. There's nobody in this room, so don't worry. We have this friend that only calls us when they want something. And it's gotten to the point now when they call, I'm like, don't answer. <laughs> I don't want to do this again. 
Oh, by the way, I'm not saying please, if you need something, please call me. But this, <laughs> I just want to say that. Okay, please call me. I'm not saying don't bother me. But this friend, I mean, a pattern for 15, 20 years. She knows what I'm talking about. This pattern, um, we, we don't hear from her. Oh, I said her. I've narrowed it down. We don't hear from her at all until it's time for a favor, okay? And of course, we don't mind doing favors, but we, I also know that she only likes us because we'll do stuff for her, okay? But that's not the way we're to love Christ. We're, we're to love Christ with a sincerity of love because of who he is. That's what this passage is getting at. And rounding that back to assurance, I want to say this because assurance is highly desirable in the Christian life, but there may be times where you, you don't feel assured. Just because you don't have assurance doesn't mean you're not saved. I mean, who in here has never had a period of doubt? Surely you all have. And there'll be more to come probably. But just because you don't have assurance for a moment or for a season or for a time, depending on whatever the situation, doesn't mean you're not in Christ. Instead, I think that there's things, again, these means that God gives us to help assure us. Again, what do we do? When we gather together, we read God's word, you read God's word, we pray together, we take the Lord's Supper, we see God uh, marching the gospel to the nations, we see people getting baptized. So all these things are meant to help assure us. So just because, and I just want to say this, just because maybe right now you're at this point where you, you're just in this dark period and you're like, I don't, I'm doubting or I don't feel the assurance. And let me just say something to you. Your assurance is not based on your feelings. Your assurance is not based on your performance. Your assurance can only come from Christ. Your salvation is not based on you and your good works. Your salvation is based on Christ and his accomplishment. Look to him. Love him for who he is. All right. Any questions about assurance? Anyone want to sing Blessed Assurance? Dan? All right. Chapter 19, the law of God. 19.1 says this, God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written in his heart and a specific precept not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By these, God obligated him, excuse me, in all his descendants to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised life if Adam fulfilled it and threatened death if he broke it. And he gave Adam the power and ability to keep it. So this mixes a whole lot of what we talked about last week, right, with free will and the covenant, how God told Adam, hey, if you do this, you're going to flourish. Don't do this thing, okay? Don't eat of the tree. This is the covenant I'm making with. This is our, our bond together. Don't do this thing. But we know that Adam broke it. But what it's teaching us is that the law of God is written on the heart of Adam and also on our hearts. That God has written his law on our hearts. And so what am I talking about by law? Well, the confession helps us out in the next couple of paragraphs 19.2 says this, the same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in 10 commandments. It was written in two tablets. The first four commandments contain our duty to God and the other six, our duty to humanity. 
Um, I really want to read the rest of this, but we really need to zoom through. So I'm going to just summarize. So when we talk about the law of God, we can break it up into three components, okay? So this law, again, the law of God was written on our hearts as humans, okay? Um, And if we're not in Christ, it condemns us because none of us can live up to the law of God. Look at the Ten Commandments. Every single person in this room and who has ever existed has broken several, if not all of them, okay? Probably all of them. Um, and so once you break one, you are condemned under the law. Um, and so it's important. We know this because this is the law of God is the standard by which, Hey, here's righteousness, fulfill the law, keep the law, but we can't do it. There's only one who could. And we talk about the law. We can divide it into three. So one is the moral law. So you think the 10 commandments, these are moral laws. The first four having to do with our relationship between God and us, and the sec- and then the next six having to do with our relationship between us and man, other men. So it's this moral law that still, uh, I'll flesh this out a little bit more, um, we, we adhere to today. I'm going to circle back to that. But then there's also the ceremonial laws, okay? And you see these when you get to Exodus, Leviticus, um, these laws about sacrifices. And so um, these laws, we obviously, no one is... I don't have a bull up here or a pigeon or anything. I'm not out here sacrificing any animals. So obviously we don't hear to these laws. Uh, and the reason is because Christ has already fulfilled these things. Those, those laws, the sacrifices are good in the fact that they point us to the one who can fulfill them. So you think about sacri- the sacrificial cer- ceremonial laws were meant, the, the blood of animals never took away sins, right? Instead, they point us to the one who, who can, to the one who can fulfill these laws. Not only ceremonial laws, but judicial laws. So civil laws, because Israel was a nation state, right? So they had laws that governed their society. If you do this, you're going to die. If you do this, you're going to be taken outside the camp. Or if you do this, you're going to be exiled. So you know, just think about laws similar to like traffic laws, okay? These civil laws. Well, Israel... Right, stopped being a nation state when they were exiled. Now, I know that they're a nation again, but we don't have time to talk about that, really. But these laws, again, point to its fulfillment. Christ has fulfilled these, the law. And so, if we are in Christ, we are no longer condemned by the law. Right, because if you went before a judge... And here, here's the law. Here's what you must do. And you will say, I broke every one of those things. You are condemned. The law condemns everyone because we've sinned. We've broken God's law. But Jesus kept the law perfectly. Never sinned once. Was completely righteous. So when we believe in Jesus, we are no longer condemned by the law. But I want to say this too, and again, we're summarizing here. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, we still talk about them a lot. Why? Well, because believers in Christ, even though those, those things aren't the things that saved us, Jesus saved us, well, they still are the law written on our hearts and we still abide by them. It's the fruit of what God has done in our hearts to, to help conform. It doesn't mean that we'll never break them but it does point us back to, hey, how do I live? Like, it's a good thing not to murder someone, right? <laughs> we don't want to murder anyone, 
right? And so those laws aren't, when I say that we're not, I say that we're no longer condemned by the law. I'm not saying that, hey, you know, the Ten Commandments, psh, you know, it don't matter anymore. Jesus fulfilled those things. Yeah, we don't care about the Ten Commandments. Jesus fulfilled the law. People love to say that sort of thing to get themselves out of sin and trouble. Oh yeah, Jesus fulfilled the law. I don't, I'm not liable to that anymore. They use that as their basis for Christian religion. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, I just do whatever I want. But we know that that's not the purpose. We see what Christ has done. And no longer, even though we're no longer under the law, we're not justified uh, by the law. We're not condemned by the law. We were saved by grace. The law is helpful for us to see who God is, his character. It's helpful to see his will, like what he wills for you. And so we don't just cast the Ten Commandments aside and say, oh, these are no good anymore. These were just an old thing that God did. That was the Old Testament God. We're in the New Testament. Oh, Jesus had strong things to say about the law. He came, he says that he came to fulfill the law. Not to just throw it away. All right, chapter 20. The gospel and the extent of its grace. Um, this is kind of a, well, we've been covering the, this chapter stands kind of in a weird spot because it's not really having to do with anything we've been talking about. All these other ones seem, you can kind of see their progression and how they relate to each other. But this one's kind of odd. It kind of stands alone. And I think a big reason why this chapter was written um, was to respond to false teaching that was out there. There was these movements, these different heresies um, that were being preached that, hey, you know, yeah, we, we know that God's word is good and Jesus reveals himself, especially people, people need Jesus to be saved. But what about the people that have never heard about Jesus? Surely not. Surely like God will just have mercy on them and save them, even though they've never heard the name of Jesus. And so uh, we don't believe that because it's not what the Bible teaches. And, and, I, and actually, I think this chapter is also written to help increase our urgency to take the gospel to the nations because people need to hear the word of God. They need to hear about Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must go. Let me read 20. Let me see what would be the best to sum this up. I'm going to read 20.4. The gospel is the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace. And it is abundantly sufficient for that purpose. Yet to be born again, brought to life or regenerated, those who are dead in trespasses also must have an effectual, effectual, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in every part of their souls to produce in them a new spiritual life. Without this, no other means will bring about their conversion to God. So what it's saying, what this chapter is saying is that people need to hear the gospel. One time uh, we, we were... I think it was our first year of marriage. We were living in Charleston, South Carolina. We were looking for a church to go to. And uh, we visited this church Sunday school. And uh, so far it was going pretty good. And uh, one, one of the discussions, it's really not, I'm not trying to pick on this church. It's not, it's just this one person. Uh, the Sunday school teacher, the topic was evangelism. So sharing the gospel. And he talked about a lot about living the gospel out. 
know, we talked about good works, like doing good works, going on mission trips, you know, being kind, serving people, doing these things. Um, and he made the statement of, you know, I think that if we live the gospel out, you don't, uh, he's trying to appeal to people's fear of sharing the gospel. If you live the gospel out, people will see that and believe in Jesus. Well, no, because yes, it's good that you're doing those things, but you haven't told them, you haven't, that's like if you're in the desert and, and you're, you were just thirsty because you're in the desert and you haven't found water and you see someone walk up who looks perfectly fine. They're perfectly hydrated. And they just come up to you. They're like, oh, wow, it's a great day, isn't it? I'm hydrated. And then they don't tell you where to find it. That's not going to do them any good. They don't just absorb your, your uh, water by osmosis. No. We're to tell them, hey, well, the water's over here. You need to go over here. And so the gospel's the same way. We go and we preach the gospel. The emphasis is all over the New Testament. Paul says in Romans, how will they hear if no one tells them? How? So there's an urgency here. Why do we talk about missions so much here? Because of this. We want this grace, the gospel of grace, to be extended all over the nations. We want people to hear the gospel because without the gospel being preached to people, there will be no salvation. Cannot just somehow figure it out. No, you you need the gospel preached to you. All right. Got one minute. Any questions? Okay. All right, cool. All right, well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Uh, once again, we're so thankful to come together this evening and we pray tonight, Lord, we ask you humbly for your wisdom, 